are recording, and you can go ahead and uh, you have to press play whenever you're ready. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. It is. I, it is. I moved it back. Yeah, all you have to do okay. is hit the button on the bottom, the space bar. Okay, so... Just hit the space bar, the button on the bottom. Space bar. Space bar. Space bar, right, right here. That's the space bar. Sorry. That's a button. <laughs> it's not back at the beginning. Now it is. <laughs> Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to episode three of a Crypticast. Uh, this uh, episode is called Inception, how we created an award-winning film from scratch. Yes, this is um, the one you've all been waiting for. Well, now, as we mentioned in our first two uh, podcasts, however, our first two episodes, I should say, you can't rely on Hollywood uh, to get the job done. You can't rely on support from Hollywood. You, there's a lot to learn from Hollywood, uh, but you're going to end up having to do this on your own. And we're going to tell you how we did it uh, with minimal budget. Uh, and gosh, we had a cast of 50, not one of which we paid. Um, we're not proud of this. We would love to pay our cast. That's true. But but um, they were willing, God bless them, to work for nothing. And it can be done. You can make an award-winning film uh, uh, from scratch. You yeah. know what I mean? This is this is a baking, a baking class 101. So... Um, I'm going to go ahead and sort of set things up, and then I'm going to have Christian take it from there because the story that uh, that we used in our film um, don't forget had it's based in, on a true story. Based on a true story had its inception from Chris and Chris alone. I had very little involvement in that, and so I'm going to kind of have him uh, guide us through the earlier uh, portion of, of pre-production uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of production, which is later episodes. Um, I want to start off by quoting Bob Gale. Now, most of us are familiar with Bob Gale. If you're an independent filmmaker, he's the writer and producer of the Back to the Future series. And he always likes to remind aspiring screenwriters that the three things that matter most in any story are characters, characters, and characters. And as viewers, that's what we connect with. We want to champion Luke Skywalker in his otherworldly space universe because we ourselves want to be there. We want to... Take a time-traveling adventure with Marty McFly because we like the guy. We want to get revenge with, you know, William Wallace because, like him, uh, we can't take it from the boss man anymore. <laughs> yeah. That sums up... Uh, long shanks. Uh, <laughs> that sums up Braveheart. Um, so when Chris and I first approached... Or when Chris, I should say, first approached me with the pitch for this film called Mortal Remains, which was the film that we eventually ended up producing... He was primarily focusing on this high-concept idea, uh, which I found very intriguing, and I'll let him get into the details of that. But what I always thought was, was interesting and what I had learned in my studies uh, as a filmmaker and what kind of was ringing in my ear when he was talking about this really cool high-concept film was, well, maybe we should be focusing on the characters. Uh, the human element is always more intriguing, the person behind that high-concept. Um, and, uh, you know, for many, storytelling can be a very elliptical process. I mean, we're experiencing that right now. We're trying to work on a, on a new script. And there is no formula. What, what we learn from, uh, from, our, from those who have gone before us, um, is that the process has no rhyme or reason. Um, everybody has a different method, whether it's, you know, your cue card, not your cue cards, but your index cards on the wall, or whether you just sit and face an empty screen, or hold a pen and, you know, jot down notes on napkins. Everybody's process is uh, is very, very different. Um, but there is no 
there is no guaranteed formula that if you follow these steps, you know, no matter what Sid Field says, if you follow these steps, you're going to have the most successful film uh, of all time on paper. Unless and you're so, James Cameron. Unless you're James Cameron. <laughs> and so it's an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing process. Um, and we have much to learn. When I say Hollywood can't isn't there for us, what I mean is you can't rely on Hollywood uh, for financing and guidance. But what we can rely on are the experiences of all the filmmakers that have gone before us, uh, who often now thanks to DVD extras and so forth or or books have shared their experiences. And Chris and I are, are big fans of studying. The, you know, are those who uh, we appreciate in the craft um, and their experiences. Um, and so eventually Chris found the heart of this film, Mortal Remains, that we put together. And so I'm going to ask him now to take us step through steps of the hardships of writing, rewriting, and recrafting this movie, Mortal Remains, because I think there's a lot to learn from the experience that he had, because the script that he wrote, that he labored over for five years, wasn't even the script that we ended up using. It was the backbone of a script yeah. that we ended up using. And so I'm going to have Chris take it over from here well, and kind of just share your experience. Stephen King, I think, put it best where he said, uh, I think it's, it wasn't his book on writing, which is an excellent book, but it was one of one of his forewords maybe, or it might have been Dance Macabre, I can't remember. But one of his books, he talks about the process of writing a story. And he says, you know, the story just sort of comes to you from somewhere else and you put it down on paper as it comes to you. And uh, sometimes it's you know, it's like digging up fossils. Sometimes it's a little bone. Sometimes it's a shell. Sometimes it's a great big T-Rex. And it ends up, you know, sometimes it's a short story. Sometimes it's a novel. So uh, what we did, what I did writing Mortal Remains, uh, I wrote the thing originally as a documentary. Uh, back to front. The whole thing was a documentary. And uh, what we ended up doing with the, what Mortal Remains finally became was I sort of built the, the skeleton. I built the Tyrannosaurus, and then I buried it. And so in the process of making our film, we uncovered bits and pieces of this big skeleton that we knew was there. But, you know, on film, we're, we're discovering a piece at a time. And uh, that, was, that was the fun part for me, was creating this character and this reality uh, and building that story, and that was that was what the the writing of the screenplay was all about. Was was the, again because I wrote it as a documentary. I created the the entire story of Carl Atticus from beginning to end. Uh, and yeah, we should mention that Carl was a, a provocateur of of exploitation films. He he was I guess you could consider him sort of the Rosetta Stone of the slasher film movement of the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's uh, again the whole thing was based upon. Uh, at the time, and I was, I was, I wanted to write a screenplay. I had started several over the years, and they never got further than you know ten or fifteen pages. And uh, I started thinking about what, what movie has not yet been made? Because even then, this is like two thousand and and one, I think two thousand and two. I was thinking about what movie hasn't yet been made. Everything is a sequel or a remake, and you know, again, we're. we're in the same territory 15 years later. Um, but I thought, hmm, two ideas kind of crashed in my head. One of which was a story I had just read uh, by, I think, Robert Chambers. It's called The King in Yellow. And it, it's a story about a play. And every, every time this play is performed, the audience goes mad. 
And the other idea was uh, Star Wars, because before Lucas started making his prequels, he tried an experiment, and it was called Shadows of the Empire. And they released the book, and the comic book, and the action figures, and the soundtrack, but there was no real movie. The movie didn't exist. So it was all the merchandise with no movie. And uh, I thought, wow, the only movie that hasn't been made yet is the movie that doesn't exist. And somehow that kind of gelled into my head to make the film about the filmmaker and his movie, which has been lost. But the high concept itself was the movie that made its audience the movie, go mad. The movie that drove its audience mad, right. Which is what you were hooked on, and I kept saying, but and who's this Carl? I kept asking, who's this Carl guy, though? You keep mentioning his name, but I want to know more about it. Who's this right. mystery man? Who is this guy? And uh, strangely, I started talking about it before I finished writing it, which is a mistake. Because right <laughs> away, learned. yeah, there were other stories suddenly popping up, uh, you know, other shows and movies about the film that drove its audience mad. And I thought, well, well, this is a pretty big fucking coincidence. How many, how many stories suddenly did? How many people had the same idea at the same time? So, that's my two golden rules now of writing a screenplay: is write it fast and keep your mouth shut until you've copyrighted it. But um, now, there you had a personal connection with those in 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 a route, sort of a six degrees of separation uh, sort of way yeah. with these other two films I, that came out. Yeah, I can't I can't prove it, and I'm not going to name them. But, uh, you know, I mean, just think about it. In the past ten years, there are a couple of productions, one of which uh, has never seen the light of day, as far as I know. Uh, but the other one was part of a series. And it's just about the film the film that drove its audience mad and was lost forever, and it, it was... But this, this idea that was bubbling in the circles that you were, you know, a part of. Well, I were... told it to a, ro- a room full of people. And I was kind of pitching it because, you know, it was, it was Ed and a bunch of the Blair Witch guys. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I want to make this movie. It's kind of like the, the Blair film project that we're looking, you know, the, examining the film. Because Blair Witch originally, in its first incarnation, was, a lot of people know this already, it was uh, intercut. It was the footage that was found by the filmmakers in the woods. And then it was also documentary footage. So the film was built as a documentary about these kids who disappeared. And when Artisan picked it up... They said, take all the documentary stuff out, and we'll make that marketing material, and the movie itself will be just their footage, uh, which will be much much more vague and creepy as a result. And it worked. It worked. So, but I wanted to go back to that original story of intercutting between uh, the documentary footage and footage of this guy's films. And uh, that was my intention originally. And I wrote that, finally, I committed it to paper and uh, started writing it in 2003, and I finally finished it sometime in 2004 and, you know, sent it to the, the, um, was it Library of Congress? What are you? Yeah, oh, no, I, I sent it, well, sent to the Writers Guild. I yeah, sent yeah, it to yeah, the yeah. WGA. To the Guild, I think. Yeah. I, I, we, we didn't send it to the, we sent it to the Library of Congress much, much, much later, later yeah. after that. But I, yeah, I did register but, it with the Writers Guild. Now, now that we're, you know, since the, the focus of our podcast is kind of focusing on the indie filmmaker, what can you share about the, 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 it was almost five years, I think it was four or five years that it took you to write that. You know, a lot of people. No, I wrote it in, in about a year. I mean, I literally sat down to write it in 2003 and I think I finished it sometime in 2004. And uh, maybe early 2005, I finally sent it to the Writers Guild after having edited it a couple times. Because it did go through some changes. Uh, You know, I had it set originally in this little town in uh, Illinois. What I wanted to do was set it... I wanted to create this person and this situation 
that would exist in a contemporary setting with other filmmakers at the beginning of that sort of period of, of when the, the young filmmakers were taking over the industry. But I didn't want him to be near any of those existing filmmakers. And when you say the young filmmakers, we're talking the period of the late 60s or late, the 70s. Exactly. We're talking the Scorseses and the Coppolas exactly. and the Spielbergs and the Lucases. That's why he, he couldn't be in Hollywood. Actually, he could have been because he would have been an obscure figure. But uh, he, I wanted to be somewhere Midwestern or somewhere that didn't really have any filmmaking uh, uh, figures coming from that area. And so originally he was in Illinois, and then I had him uh, Ohio. in Ohio, yeah. Maslin, Ohio. It's a small town that my family is from. And um, Mark, uh, you, when you came into the project, you wanted to change the setting to Baltimore. And I was I was firm. I said I can't. We can't put him in Baltimore because John Waters was there making movies in that period. They would have crossed paths at some point. You can't alter history to have. Uh, but we did, and we, in fact, we included John Waters in our story eventually, uh, in in some capacity. The compromises of screenwriting, right? Which you know, but but you you at least defended why you felt that well, move I, was not. I defended it because move. at that point I had built the fossil, and I was. I was saying, well, that's that's how it happened. You can't change it because yeah. that's how it happened. Uh, but of course, I could change it. You know, I was just kind of protecting my creation. Uh, but it was okay to make alterations like that. But again, I wrote the thing from beginning to end as a documentary, talking to friends and family members of this lost filmmaker and showing bits and pieces of his of his uh, creations. And a lot of the horror, you know, it's I mean, we we consider it a horror film, but it really is more like a psychological horror or psychological thriller, yeah, than a, an outright horror film. But uh, it's about a filmmaker who was making horror films that may not have just been horror films. They may have been actual, you know, people being murdered on film. And I hate to use the term snuff movie. And I told uh, Mark for years to avoid using that term because once you once you let that cat out of the bag, then you know what to expect. Um, but it was about a filmmaker and his films. And so all the horror, all the horrific elements would be implied. You'd see a sketch of something horrific or you'd see footage of something scary like Charles Manson uh, but everything was implied because we didn't have the budget to actually create any big special effects so 2002 mm -hmm. you begin 2003 you rap I remember you sending it to me I remember reading it going this is brilliant I sent it to my brother mm -hmm. whose opinion I respect and he was like this is a brilliant film I got excited I thought I'd really like to make this film I'm out in Hollywood pitching a story to uh, the acquisitions department at Sony Pictures they're not interested. They ask me what else I've got. I pitch your story in what I consider to be the worst Hollywood pitch ever. <laughs> because I, I vaguely recalled reading it in 04. It's now 2008, four years later. I'm pitching it to, to a gentleman who, uh, who uh, funnels everything to the president of acquisitions. Um, and he falls in love with your story. Primarily because uh, he sees potential in it, but from a completely different angle. Because Paranormal Activity had just come out, it was making buco bucks for Paramount. I think it was released through Paramount at the time. And before Blumhouse got involved and Sony Pictures took over, or Sony Pictures has a relationship with, with Blumhouse. And I contact you. Uh, it's a three-hour time difference, so I guess it's, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning in Pittsburgh. Hey, Chris, I just talked with somebody at Sony Pictures. They'd like to see your script. So Chris pulls it out, dusts it off. We send it to Sony Pictures, and they come back with liner notes. And in these liner notes they have a major shift in attitude towards how the project should be approached. Mm -hmm. Talk about the shock that you had when you thought, 
well, this isn't the story that I wrote. Yeah. Welcome well, to Hollywood. Yeah, welcome to Hollywood. Um, again, it was not. It was not a bad suggestion. It was just something unexpected, and I thought, okay, that's I can I can dig it. But how are we going to make it work? And the suggestion was, uh, it's very interesting. The story you've created is very very dense and rich with detail and good characters, but. As a documentary, I don't think anyone's going to want to see it. Anyone's going to, uh, you know, stay interested long enough. And that brings to mind another film that uh, a friend of ours saw. It was called Lake Mungo, which is an Australian film. It's very well made, and it's uh, again presented as a documentary, um, kind of similar to Picnic at Hanging Rock, that somebody disappears out in the outback and nobody's quite sure why. There are paranormal events sort of hinted at. But uh, he said, by the time I was, you know, two quarters of the way through it, I thought, why do I care? I know this isn't real. So I'm waiting for the payoff of this documentary. And it's, you know, there is no real payoff because I know none of this really happened. And so uh, the angle that the fellow at Sony suggested was to combine our documentary with, I say, a found footage component uh, a footage of you know a couple of people going in search of this guy in search of the lost movie to give the audience something to relate to. I think they refer to it as a first person narrative, but they, yeah. I think they said you could even go the third person narrative route. At, but I don't know if it worked as well uh, when we thought about it when we sort of. Yeah, I don't think they mentioned found footage outright. I think we settled on that format because that was all we could afford in that terms of in terms of production value. Economic decision. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, we ended up I thinking, well, how am I going to graph these two together? And, of course, it ended up becoming a lot more like what Blair Witch was intended to be originally, which was the found footage sequence of these these two guys looking for the the lost film itself and looking for evidence of the guy and people who knew him, cutting back and forth within the film to sequences of the documentary explaining who he was and what he may have been doing and why it's probably not a good idea to go looking for this guy. But, of course, the, the, our two characters keep digging because they're, they explain at the beginning of the film they're in it for the money that there's a, a possibility of somebody picking this film up and they can make some money because and, true to life we were in that same we were and that's, and that's <laughs> what we say when we say it was based on a true story the, the first ten minutes well no the, you know maybe the first act of that film it, it is based on a true story because Mark and I really did go to high school together and we really have been making movies since then or you know short films or whatever and um so, so uh, not to interrupt, but but uh, after we receive the liner notes and you and I discuss it, of course, we interpret first-person narrative as found footage because I, we just did at the time, especially primarily because of paranormal activity. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do? You go to the source of found footage. Which, fortunately, you know, we, we knew and went to we school with. He yeah, happens to be a, a personal so, friend of ours. So we went to Ed. Ed Sanchez. And said, uh, what do you think? Do you think we can pull this off? And Ed's response was, retroscript the film. Now, I don't know if most of you may or may not be familiar with retroscripting. When you're retroscripting a film, you are basically filming the film based on notes that you provide your actors. And then afterwards, you sort of write the script. Uh, And it was a format I am uh, not akin to. It's most unfamiliar to me. And... I had struggled with it throughout the, the, the filmmaking process. But all the same, uh, uh, Chris, here, here he is. We're now six years later, going on seven years, 
Um, this thing was, you know, written, sat on a desk, finally got some recognition, and then suddenly he's being told, yeah, the script is great, but don't use it. Instead, you're going to make this up as you go. And the only reason I think the film ended up being an award-winning film was because of the T-Rex buried in the sand. Right, and that's what we did was uh, because uh, maybe, I want to say 95% of the people in mortal remains are not actors they are real people that i at the time i was working at a bookstore and so you know maybe 15 or 20 of those people in the movie i worked with at the bookstore i knew uh from working at the bookstore they were maybe customers or people that would just hang out you know around the store and rather than trying to get these people to act i would give them a sort of dossier i would say okay here's what you know about this guy and the situation and then I'll ask you questions, and you just answer them as if you remember these things. And it worked. For the most part, it worked. A lot of people really just, you know, they just looked and sounded convincing, and they were reminiscing about this guy as if they knew him. And uh, when you cut enough of that together, it, it builds a story. And that's kind of what fascinated me about the whole thing, was that how does, how does somebody become legendary, quote-unquote? Uh, you know, you can read about... Uh, you know, George Romero had his gallbladder removed during a surgery, blah, blah, blah. And then you meet the guy, and it's like, okay, well, I know this guy has no gallbladder because I read that somewhere, you know. <laughs> so is that true? I mean, he's like, yeah, I had my gallbladder taken out, you know. But you, uh, that's maybe just me because I grew up as a kid for some reason. I don't know why this, this was, the, my brain worked this way, but people on TV and people in movies, they were like deities See, to yeah, me. Absolutely. They were gods, you know, and, and to... And then I found out that my brother had worked on a movie, and then another movie, and so he was on the other side of the screen. He was in this movie. You could go to the theater and see, that's my brother, yeah. wow! And somehow he had become sort of, you know, sort of a, a semi-god, you know. It sounds silly now, but when you're a kid, this makes a big impression on you. And, no, um, they, call, they refer to it as the Pantheon of Hollywood for a reason. I mean, yeah. you do, and less so now, because actors seem to be almost afterthoughts. Um, although in the indie market, they will tell you the first thing you need to do is cast a B movie actor, somebody with a name, and you need yeah. a director with a name. Well, what are you talking about? A director with a name? No, none of us are directors with names in the indie market. Well, you know what's fascinating? Because they're all being sucked up by Hollywood now. Especially is that people who you know in the eighties and nineties were big movie stars like Bruce Willis and yeah, yeah. and Stallone, and suddenly here we are twenty years later, and these guys are struggling to get work. Yeah, you know, and meanwhile these old B movie actors. People like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez are digging them out of you know whatever retirement yeah, they're in yeah. and putting them back in these big, high-profile movies. And thank God for that. Yeah, really. Thank so God people for appreciate giving us uh, you know a second chance, a yeah. second voice. Um, so, talk about our first failed attempt. So we 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 get this retroscripting idea. We're extremely excited that Sony has shown interest. We're terrified that they'll forget about us, and so we immediately go into production. We're totally unfamiliar with the retroscripting process. It's not something that we, we've always been third-person narrative kind of guys, and we attempt to make uh, what turns out to be a sixty-minute film that will eventually have to be on our DVD with extras. Oh, please! Um, and but it's it's incomplete. That'll it's, be the hidden feature. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well hidden. But but um, you well, know, we wanted to make it and and get it to Sony as quickly as possible, it, that backfired. Well, first we have to mention uh, the proof of concept, which, uh, you know, I wrote a sort of quickie outline, and I sent Mark a bunch of footage from other documentaries 
documentaries about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the making of The Exorcist, stuff like that. Just provocative little quotes of people saying things like, oh, we've never seen anything like that. Uh, people were vomiting in the aisles. Right. And so we intercut that with footage from you know, other shocking movies like Last House on the Left. And we cut it together in such a way as if it was a 10-minute reel about Carl Atticus and where he came from and what happened to him and why he was so sort of a, a, a persona non grata in the film industry and, and in, in fact, in cinematic history. People didn't want to talk about him. And so we put this together, Mark put it together, out of the footage that I provided. And just as a proof of concept, just as a test, and we sent it to our friend at Sony, who showed it to his boss, who was the president of acquisitions. The VP, I think. The VP of acquisitions. And this guy watched it and said, how come I've never heard of this guy? Who is this Carl Atticus? He thought he was watching a real documentary clip. And at that point, we were sold. We said, okay, if if we can convince this guy that this was a real person, then we're onto something. Even with that in our arsenal. Yeah. We still couldn't get any seed money. It that's not the way the system works. Oh yeah, they will not open their pocketbook for they you. They said they still said, make it and send it to us when you're done. And which then is we'll why talk. we yeah. rushed production. Yeah, so we rushed then, into production on the thing. And uh, because I don't know if I said it in this podcast or maybe it was in the last episode too, but uh Mark and I live now in different states. We, we grew up together in Maryland, and Mark still lives here in Maryland, but I live in Pittsburgh, which is not very far geographically, but it's far enough that we can't spare the time because we both have jobs. We have full-time jobs, so we don't, we don't have the time anymore and the luxury that we did when we were younger to get together for a week or two and actually do something uh, you know, beginning to end. So we shot bits and pieces of this film over three years. Four. four years, <laughs> yeah, over a four-year period, and uh, and we'll get into that when we talk about production, yeah, uh, and the hardships that we experienced, and even <clears throat> even that being said, we but we kept going, we never stopped, well, and that's what we're trying to tell independent filmmakers yeah. is we had everything against us. I mean, financing and geographic and we said, issues. We just said fuck it, we're going to finish being this in thing. different states. Uh, but yeah, initially because we wanted to avoid that, we wanted to get into it quickly because. Uh, you know, the guy at Sony said, paranormal activity is hot. Get this thing together as quickly as you can and we'll pitch it. And so we tried to do it on the cheap and in a hurry. And so we had created a new hybrid script with the old documentary sequences and with a couple of new characters who were going in search of Carl Atticus and his movie. And uh, Mark, being a very efficient producer, said, well, we can't spare the time to do it together. I'll just rewrite your character as... A girl, and we'll cast somebody down here. In Maryland. And then there's one sequence where I show up, and uh, I kind of provide you know more information on Carl Atticus and you know why we're not digging in the right place kind of thing. It, it, um, was, it was incoherent. It was not a very... Um, it, 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 it failed on many levels because it was rushed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, haste makes waste. But you know, the thing we learned from that was that, okay, we can we can do this. We, we, just, have, we have the skill, we have the technology, we have the... The talent to do it, but and the we money need to at take the time. and the money, but we need to take the time. Time to do it right. Yeah, and so we to spent the right. next couple of years carving bit by bit every scene, every sequence. And to come full circle, when we began screening our film, even after the crafting and recrafting of the Carl Atticus persona, what people most connected with in our film were Chris and I. We had to cast ourselves because we couldn't afford we couldn't to afford hire actors, actors yeah. long term. It's certainly not for a five-year shoot, four-year shoot. And it was our rapport on screen that people connected with. And we learned a valuable lesson. 
character is vital. Bob Gale was right all along. Yeah. No matter how you write your script or retro script or whatever it is that you do to get your film on the screen, you have to consider the characters are what people connect with. And, you know, they can be animal, human, inanimate. I mean, the Starship Enterprise is its own character. Right. Uh, but that human component needs to connect with your high-concept idea. You know, And fortunately, Mark and I have been making shorts and, 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 you know, little comedies and stuff together for years. So we've been, we're, we're used to being on camera with each other or filming, filming each other uh, in a situation. And so it was second nature to us. And so it just look, you know, people say you sound like an old married couple. Well, we, you know, we have been. We've we've been arguing about the same shit for thirty <laughs> years. But uh, that that also sold into the reality of the thing because you believe these two guys. Um, at this point, we're going to wrap up this episode and, and mention that if you haven't uh, uh, checked out any of Michael Hogg's work, he is a sort of a story master uh, that does a lot of. Uh, uh, he de- helps people develop their skills in the craft of screenwriting. He's got several books out, several workshops. You can watch YouTube clips online. Check him out, along with Sid Field, who I mentioned earlier, um, who was sort of the, is, the, the yes, guru he, of screenwriting. He is the guru of screenwriting. Is he still relevant? The three-act story? Is that still... Does that uh, still? To a degree. To yeah. a degree. After Scream came out, it became the four-act story because you needed the, the twist ending yeah. after the ending. But... Um, uh, I also want to mention now, we're going to wrap this episode up, but I want to mention that all of the, the films that we mentioned, all of the uh, uh, references that we have to any clips online, any books that we're referring to, um, periodicals, magazines, newspapers, and so forth, we are not receiving any sponsorship dollars for any of this. We're doing this for the good of the film community. We're doing this for indie filmmakers. We are not asking for or or searching for any sort of financial residual. We want to be able to stay true to why we're promoting what we're promoting. We're using, we're talking about the tools that helped us. And And Michael Hogg was a If you have any questions, shoot us a tweet at uh, cryptic, you know, at cryptic pictures or send us an email, crypticpictures.com. Yep. Either Mark or I or both will be happy to answer you or, you know, to point you in a direction. If you have any questions, do not be shy. Wonderful, folks. Listen, uh, we're going to come back with episode four coming up where we talk about pre-production. Holy shit, what did we get ourselves into? Right. (laughs) We'll be talking about that next episode, folks. Thanks for listening.